0: If you could impart just any advice or wisdom to anyone right now, if this were like your grandkids or your family members, what would it be?
1: What I would and have said to uh, my children and grandchildren is uh, to think for yourself, to not just take somebody's word, either on television, on the radio, or in the classroom, that... This is the way it is. Find out for yourself.
0: This is Legacy, stories from older generations for insight into the world today. I'm Michelle Harvin.
1: This only happened one time in the history of this country. The president of the United States directed the D.C. police force to recruit through the armed forces, radio and television.
0: That's Gary Hankins. He was about to embark on something completely new, a police department on the brink of transformation during one of the most unique moments in the Capitol's history. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. In 1968, the nation learns of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Riots break out in cities across the country. D.C. is one of the hardest hit. For days, looting and rampant fires grip the nation's capital. D.C.'s police force was becoming overwhelmed because during this same time, protests against the Vietnam War were getting more serious
1: and they were getting larger and larger and more organized through the college campuses and coming to Washington having demonstrations, but they were getting more violent and they were getting larger. So federal government wanted the police department to triple essentially, well, two and a half times our size, as fast as they could.
0: Gary is president of the Retired Police Association in D.C., but before that, Gary was a young man fighting the war in Vietnam. One day, he hears an announcement over the military radio that catches his attention.
1: Hundreds of thousands of airmen, sailors, Marines, uh, Army, were reading this spot announcement about joining the Metropolitan Police Department, and I wanted to become a police officer, and then this this came out of nowhere, I could join from Southeast Asia. They'd send the tests over, it'd be graded, and you'd be advised if you were hired or not. I was hired by the Metropolitan Police Department. I was one of literally thousands. When I came on board, no one in my department had ever been on a police department. A couple of them had been involved with the police, but from the other side of that of the badge
0: around this time about half of america is against the vietnam war and that number keeps rising the anger and sheer size of demonstrations against the war begins making the us government pretty nervous gary hears about all this as he's making his way back home
1: when i'm coming back we're advised by our uh, base commanders take your uniforms off before you Get to a place where you're going to go into the airport. Take them off any, whenever you can, because if you have a military uniform on, there are people waiting to spit on you, to scream at you, to do it, you know, throw things, blood on you when you arrive. We're being briefed before we leave that when you get home, you're not going to be welcomed. You're going to be insulted and perhaps assaulted.
0: It's true. Gary's welcome home is immediately met with an outpouring of ridicule against his actions in Vietnam. And now his new job is to control these protests, along with learning how to be a DC officer. And it wasn't an easy time to do that. The city was experiencing a surge in crime.
1: The department hired many more thousands of officers than the 3,000 necessary, but they kept quitting. Because once you get out on the streets, and saw what it was about and how threatening it was, how difficult it was, and how demanding it was, the majority of the recruits from the military were gone within a year or two.
0: Isn't that pretty incredible, though, that someone in the military was scared away from a police beat? Wouldn't well, that
1: it, it, it wasn't once you got out there.
0: Remember, we are not so keep it in mind. I'll be known by it, long I it may sound odd, but Gary says being in the Army was so much more predictable and straightforward than the streets of D.C. For one thing, he could no longer identify his enemy.
1: No uniforms. We're wearing uniforms, but the people who are going to harm us look just like the ones who are not going to harm us. If they have a weapon, you're in serious trouble very quickly. And that, that rattles you. You look out, you look down the street, you can't tell who's carrying a gun. You can't tell who's high on drugs. can't tell who may be the one who wants to kill you. And that, that opens your eyes and gives you a perspective you never had in the military in the military. You pretty much knew when you went out on patrol, you were in danger and you were on alert. When you came back and were in camp, Then you were safe, police department, you're out on the street, there is no safe harbor. So, yes, a lot of these guys who were in the military and and they knew over there, they had a one-year tour, they got out and they were safe. Came on the police department, you have a minimum 20 years if you want to retire from the police department, and you can never know when you're safe. And we were attending too many funerals for police officers in those years.
0: For Gary, being a police officer meant being face to face with crime in a way he'd never been before.
1: The first week uh, responded to uh, murder. I never saw anyone die while I was in the service, but I was in the Air Force, so it was remote. First of all, we're running to the sound of gunfire. That takes a little getting used to. We get there. Uh, There's a dead body in the alley behind this pool hall. There's blood everywhere, brains everywhere. And he was shot because he and another guy got into an argument in the pool hall and shot him in the back of the head. Dropped him there. And uh, in those two weeks, I saw a lot more violence and
0: danger. But the challenges of his new career didn't stop there. Because the police department rapidly expanded its force with thousands of officers in a couple of years.
1: That actually changed the culture of our department in a way few uh, departments, if any other departments, saw. Law enforcement is generally a family business. People who got hired were related to somebody already on the job because law enforcement corny as it sounds, isn't just a job. It's a calling. And you have to be serious about that. They didn't know my uncles. They didn't know my dad. So they didn't trust us.
0: And so the homegrown officers would test out the newbies to see if they were spies or were just able to hang with the rest of them. One day, as Gary is going through training,
1: I'm walking a footbeat and a scout car comes by to pick me up. And he is taking me Uh, to an alley off H Street and when I get there uh, they have brought us rookies back into that alley there was a paddy wagon there back doors were open and there were coolers of beer Uh, they had uh, music going on and they had uh, chilled uh, vodka It, it, it was a party They said, each of you is going to drink with us today. That was their test. They figured they would find out if we were internal affairs, if we were reliable and trustworthy or not, or were we part of the, the uh, camaraderie. And we were probationary officers. You could be fired without any explanation. So they wanted us to take a drink. So all of us had to at least take a drink of beer if we wanted to get out of that alley and go back to work. And we did.
0: For the ones who made it through the scrutiny of their new brotherhood and could adapt to their life as a police officer, the work wasn't over. Protests against the war started to escalate. For the next couple years, the Metropolitan Police prepare their newly enlarged workforce for unprecedented public disturbances. And in May 1971, their training gets put to the test with what became known as the May Day protests.
1: They came and swore they were going to shut down the city with, uh, by whatever means necessary. And tens of thousands of them came. They were supposed to be here for three days. When the majority of them did leave, about 10,000 of them stayed and camped in the park along the Anacostia River, West Potomac Park. Now we had 10,000 people committed to shutting down Washington. They started turning over cars, setting trash cans on fire. On Rock Creek, they were rolling huge boulders down off of Rock Creek into the roadways, hitting civilian cars as they were coming by. They were taking violent action. We arrested 7,000 people in one day.
0: This is a record that still stands today. At no other time in U.S. history have there been more arrests in a single day. The National Guard was called in, along with thousands of troops on reserve. The Mayday tribe, as they were called, were a more militant group of anti-war activists, and they depended on disruption to bring the city to a halt. Accounts reveal protesters threw nails, glass, and rocks into the street in an attempt to block traffic. Around 50 buildings were vandalized and windows smashed, President Nixon ordered the police and military to pick up anyone on the street who looked like a protester. So the demonstrators quickly began losing ground.
1: They didn't shut the city down. They didn't think we could arrest that many people. We had dozens of D.C. transit buses that were contracted by the police department. They became our transport vehicles. When I arrested you, I would, instead of having to go back to the station, fill out all that paperwork, and that was what they were counting on. The demonstrators were counting on it. If I arrest you, I'm out. I'm a police officer out of the loop for two, three hours. We had a system in place. If I arrested you, I got your information. If you refused to give it to me, it didn't matter. I took you over to the bus, it took a Polaroid picture of you standing next to me. It was essentially like a traffic ticket, which identified you, where you were arrested, and what it was about, gave that to the processing officer. You were taken along the bus. And I went back. So I could arrest somebody and be back in 10 minutes. So all day long we did that. We housed people at RFK Stadium, arrested and and put them there because we didn't didn't have room to put 7,000 people in jail. Uh, There was a coliseum. That ended up being the, the place we took everybody. We ended up taking them all, and they were on the floor of the coliseum. And the officers were in the seats around and at the exits in order to, to hold them, and we fed them and gave them water and drinks and blankets, and they they had a party that was really neat. We tried to separate the men and the women, and we couldn't. We just had too many people. So they were dancing, they were uh, they were making love, they were doing everything on the floor. That and we were leaving them alone, uh, and by the next, well, within 48 hours. They'd all been processed, released by the courts, and then they went home too.
0: The May Day protests were more significant than history gives credit. Although the protesters didn't shut down the government as they intended, many believe it did pressure the Nixon administration to pull out troops more quickly. Some accounts of this day say the police did not give protesters blankets or food, which prompted neighbors to throw supplies over the fence. A Boston Globe article at the time said it was the most obnoxious peace action ever committed. But these sentiments became largely overshadowed by controversy over the government's tactics. Years later, D.C. was ordered to pay $2.2 million in damages to over 900 protesters. Gary stayed on the police force for two decades into the 90s, when D.C. was dubbed murder capital of the U.S. He retired in 92, but to this day remains highly involved in policing and how it's evolving. He stays active in the Retired Police Association and the police union, which he founded, and his own law firm, representing law enforcement unions. Legacy is produced by me, Michelle Harvin. Remember to subscribe to keep up to date on all our episodes. Check out my Twitter at Michelle Harvin to find all the links and to see some cool extra stuff like pictures and videos of our incredible storytellers. Or you can go to LegacyThePodcast.com to see all that and more. Logo design by Elise Harvin. Tech by Chris Herbert. And thanks to everyone who has helped in one way or another. Thanks for listening and remember to tune in next week. You don't want to miss it.